So good to see all of you this morning, and we continue together our study of John's gospel. So if you would, would you open with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16? In just a moment, we'll start reading at verse 16. There's something that we we need to realize as we begin together this morning. It can be maybe a little bit shocking to think about, given how far we are in this gospel, Um, And given that we ourselves already know how the story ends and what we've been hearing, uh, but it is quite clear that at this point, Jesus' disciples have no idea that he's about to die. That's not in their minds. They're beginning to get some suspicion that he is going to leave them in some way. He said a lot about that in this farewell discourse that we've been in now, hasn't he? And yet what we found is that most of what he's been saying to them about his leaving is really fulfilled in the ascension as he leaves them and ascends to heaven and returns to the Father. Uh, And so as he's talked about those things, he's been comforting them by describing, for example, the benefits of his departure, right? That when he leaves and returns to the Father, he will send the Spirit to be with them. He's comforted them by describing and assuring them of God's ongoing guidance of them when he's gone, things like that. But the events at the end of this chapter even make clear that they have no idea of exactly what is coming for them right around the corner. What we know as the arrest, the trial, the beatings, the crucifixion, the murder. And the shock of it is going to be great. It's going to be great. Jesus begins to speak to this directly this morning. We, we find ourselves, don't we, that life is full of shocking turns that are not anticipated when they come. And there's comfort for us even in what we'll hear here in this passage, especially next week. We'll see that the very comforts that Christ gives to his disciples here in view of his crucifixion, they wind up applying to us generally in a number of ways in our lives, and are even applied to us by Scripture in particular contexts. And that's the case, that can be the case, that must be the case, because of the nature of who God is, the nature of His purposes and His sovereign plans for human history and for your life and for mine. We'll see those connections eventually, but this morning we're content to listen as Jesus speaks to the pain that his death is going to cause his disciples. And he tells them two things here. Let me give these to you before we read the text, and you can be listening for them as we read. He's going to tell his disciples here this morning that although the necessity of his death will bring temporary pain, great but temporary pain, it will be productive. And so productive, in fact, that it will change everything for them. We'll be reading John 16, verses 16 to 33. We'll really only get as far as about verse 27 this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? John 16, beginning at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, 
and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered. Each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The first place our Lord goes with his disciples here as he's bringing this up, we see in verses 16 to 20, and it very much has to do with the pain that they are just hours away now from beginning to face. First thing that he tells them is this, that the pain, we know it, they don't know it in this way, but we'll call it this, the pain for them of the crucifixion will be temporary. It's the first main point that he makes here that he emphasizes to them. Pain and sorrow are coming for them, but those things are going to be temporary. There's something funny, maybe funny is not the right word, but something interesting about verses 16 to 19 here. For the length that that takes up on the page, it's really surprising how little actually takes place there. His words about not seeing and then seeing are repeated three times. Do you hear how repetitive those first several verses are, that's not always the case. There have been times we've needed to spend a whole Sunday morning on one verse of Scripture because of the weight in that verse, or the difficulty, or the significance. Verses 16 to 19 really isn't that, is it? We can can sum that up very quickly. What he's telling them is that the crucifixion is very near, but that his resurrection will also not be long in coming after he has died. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while. He uses the word micron, just a, just a short amount of time in both of these cases. And you will see me. You'll see me again. They don't understand these things here as he says them. And so he gives, in what follows, then some explanation to an extent. But do notice as we're thinking about this, what are the specifics of their confusion? What exactly are we told that they're not understanding here? Certainly they're confused about these statements of time, aren't they? Verse 17, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. They don't understand looking ahead just based on those comments, and it seems that their confusion really makes sense. If they don't know what's coming, that statement by itself does not give a lot of clarity about the details, does it? It will only be by looking backward after the fact that statements like these will make sense. And so we even see as we begin here that these are examples of what he's going to say he's doing and been doing down in verse 25. He's speaking to them in figures of speech. We'll talk about that phrase more when we get there, but he's telling them some things that lack clarity now, but that will help them as they look back. That's one thing that they're confused about, are these exact descriptions of time that's just about to take place. There's another thing they're confused about as well. Do you notice what's added at the end of verse 17? 
It's kind of slipped in there, and it can be easy to, to skip over. They also show confusion at his statement that he is going to the Father. Do you see that? Even setting his death aside, the very notion of his leaving and returning to the Father is still something that they are confused about. There's only so much that they're capable of comprehending. That's what we find in the gospel accounts. But they, they are very limited in what they're capable of grasping before these events actually unfold in front of them. We have found our Lord methodically preparing them in just exactly the right ways, but with references, with slight pictures, with analogies. This is what he's been doing. And the reality behind it is still an unclear thing for them. And this, it's helpful for us to be reminded about that this morning, where these disciples actually are right now as they're hearing him, where they are mentally. They have just marched with Christ triumphantly into Jerusalem with shouts of his kingship ringing in their ears. They're celebrating the Passover here, and the other gospel accounts tell us that on that, this very night, they've just recently been arguing about which one of them is going to occupy the greatest seat of honor in the coming kingdom. This is where their mind is right now as Jesus is preparing them and as his arrest is hours away. In fact, they've only recently gotten news from him that has begun to register for them that he's going away at all. And they've been, they've been upset about that in this discussion, haven't they? Where are you going? Is the question that they've been asking him. All the way back at the beginning of the farewell discourse, uh, it made clear to us that this was a part of Jesus' purpose for this discussion with them on this night. The first three verses of John 13 uh, list that as part of his intention. So verse 1 said, When Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved those, his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then verse 3 repeats, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. This is a part of the news that he's delivering to them on that night, which means that for them on this evening, it's news to them that he is leaving and going to the Father. We have to keep our bearings straight as to what they are understanding and what they're familiar with at this point. He's told them, for example, in chapter 12, about a time when he will be lifted up from the earth. In chapter 6, he described ascending to where he was before. But you can hear the vagueness in that language. This is their confusion right now. And he doesn't just yet clear it all up for them. What we find starting in verse 20 are words of comforting promise. Even though they don't comprehend what's coming, here's what he says to them. He says, for now, friends, know this, that the road ahead, although you don't understand it yet, it is going to hurt, but the pain will be temporary. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This is what he's assuring them with. That sorrow that I'm telling you is coming very quickly. Hold on. It's not going to last for long. And in fact, even that short length of time is what he's emphasizing. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Whatever this pain is that... that is unclear to you, but you know is going to take me from you in a way. When that initially happens, take heart because you will see me again very shortly. He's giving them what they will need to survive the next few days, isn't he? You think of the despair that they felt at the death of their Lord as all of their expectations and their misunderstandings come crashing down to the ground. He's preparing them to hold on. And he's preparing them not just with the news that the sorrow will be temporary, but that the sorrow will, in fact, be turned into joy. That's what he says to them here. And in, in verses 21 and 22, we hear the reason why. Why will it be turned into joy? This is the second part of what we see this morning. 
It's because, as he's going to tell them, not only will the pain of the crucifixion and their loss of Jesus be temporary, but in fact, this whole series of events that causes that pain is going to be incredibly productive. He gets this across to them by use of an illustration. Look again at verse 21. He uses the illustration of a woman in labor. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you, he says. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. He is going to be taken from them. Their sorrow is coming. But Jesus says, it's like the sorrow that comes to a mother as the time comes for her to give birth. She knows that something painful and frightening has arrived. And who likes that? That brings sorrow to her as she knows that it's time now. But then he says, what comes after? Well, joy comes after. In fact, he says, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that comes after. Now, there may be some mothers in here who feel a strong objection welling up inside of them. I most certainly do remember that. You understand his point here, don't you? So great is the joy in that moment that the sorrow is essentially forgotten. But it's very important that we don't miss how verse 21 ends there. You notice, and even in the picture he gives, she's not just full of joy because the pain has ended. That's not why she's full of joy. What's she joyful about? She's joyful at what the suffering has produced. That's what's filled her with joy. She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. That's the source of the joy. This is, this is the illustration that Jesus finds useful to tell them what exactly is going to come for them. He says, my friends, hear, hear this promise. As much pain and sorrow as what's coming is going to cause you, in the end, the accomplishment of it will be so great that you will be glad it took place. You'll be glad for that thing that brought this in incredible pain and sorrow to you because of what will come of it. You will thank God that that terrible suffering had been there. This is the second thing that he shows them, that he holds out to them to comfort them. At the end of this road we've been on now for many years now is very near and it will be full of pain and sorrow. But not only will it be temporary pain, but the circumstances of the pain will prove to be productive of something so tremendous that he says they will find a joy in that productivity, in the results. They will find a joy that no one will be able to take away from them. And that leads us very well to the third thing that we see in verses 23 to 27. It makes perfect sense that Jesus would say this next thing right after that because we've heard him uh, describing their impending separation, their loss, we heard him tell them that it will be productive, but he, he hasn't yet said anything about what it will produce, has he? Just that it will be productive. Well, he immediately then starts describing what it will produce. And what we find is that in the event of Jesus' crucifixion, and this, I think, is a place so common in the New Testament where his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, there's a very real sense in which this is all spoken of as a single entity, as all of redemptive history hinges on that moment. But what we find him saying is that this change that will come about as a result of what's coming is going to change everything. What I'd like to do is read again verses 23 to 27. We'll look at it in, in some pieces, but just listen again to what he says here about what this suffering is going to produce. He now starts to talk about the result of it here. He says, in that day, right? The day when their sorrow has turned to joy and joy that cannot be taken from them. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And then he repeats the same phrase he started verse 23 with, in that day, this day that he's pointing them toward, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The best way, I think, to go about this is to take a minute first and be clear in our minds about the time frame that he's talking about here. He says, in that day, in verse 23, which seems most directly to speak about the actual day where their loss of him is undone, right? So the most direct application of that could be Easter Sunday, right? They actually see him again with their eyes. And he says it again in verse 26, in that day. And he says in verse 25 that even this current message he's speaking to them is being spoken in what he calls figures of speech. But that the hour is coming when that will change. And I'm going to suggest to you that in all three of those, the two in that days and that the hour is coming, he is pointing their mind to the time when this sorrow is undone and turned to joy. And let me put a couple of thoughts on the table here for us to think about as we're wrestling with what is the time he's pointing us to here, or pointing them to? He has just promised them fullness of joy, hasn't he, in that day? He said in verse 22, it will be a joy that no one will be able to take from you. Right? Now, add to that the fact that 40 days after he emerges, emerges from the tomb, and their loss of his bodily presence is given back to them, right? and they're overjoyed about that, 40 days after that, what's going to happen? He's going to leave again. He's going to ascend to heaven, and they will never see him again in their life. He won't come back in their lifetime, right? Which means to me, the joy he is talking about and the consequences of his cross that he's talking about and what that produces, he can't just be talking about the joy of seeing him alive again on this earth, can he? If that's all he's talking about, that's a joy that will be taken away from them in 40 days. But he's pointing them to a time when this sorrow will turn to a joy that will be theirs forever. I say that to suggest to you, he's not simply talking about Easter Sunday. He's not simply talking about the joy of their sight of his body again on this earth. It's true enough that they'll be overjoyed when he is raised from the dead. But that's not the only joy that he's promising them here. So we have to think together about his intention behind the, that day that he is holding out to them. And some of the answer is, in fact, given to us because of the very expression that he uses when he says, in that day. That turns out to be, it sounds like a pretty innocuous expression, in that day. It turns out to be an expression that is used over and over again, more than 30 times in the New Testament and in times that are pointing ahead to a time of hope for the believer in just exactly this same way. Variety of contexts, but it's an expression that comes up over and over again. I'll give you just a few examples of those 30 times. 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul will write, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Another gospel, Mark 13.32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. 2 Thessalonians 2, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. There's many others. I'll just read one more here. 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of righteousness. This is what Paul's describing here that he's looking forward to. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, 
but to all who have loved his appearing. This phrase speaks about a day. And you can tell in those contexts, it's not even speaking about a 24-hour period, ultimately, is it? It's speaking about what we call elsewhere the end of the age or the end of history. And yet, this is what we need to see in our text this morning. It's also pointing in our text to a day when they see him again in the resurrection. So how do we put these two things together? I can't put it better than, than I read from one commentator. Let me share this with you. This is, I think, not only helpful, it's very important for us to hear. He said this. He said the phrase, he's talking about in that day, refers to the last days, to the end of the age. This does not mean that Jesus here is referring to the end of history and not to the period after his resurrection, but rather that he is referring to the period after his resurrection as the end of history. That day when they see him again, they are in that day. This is why 1 John 2.18, John says, Dear children, this is the last hour. He's making plain this this unbelievable change in redemptive history when Christ dies and, is, and atones for sin and rises again from the grave and ascends to heaven, what has happened is nothing less than an eschatological shift in history. We are now in the last days. That's true of the day that they see him walking out of the tomb. It will be true of this entire era until Christ comes again in his second coming. This is how fundamental that day is going to be when they see him again after losing him for three days, when Jesus is restored to them after death. And that exact day has arrived. With it will have arrived the dawning of a new age altogether. I mean, this is tremendous. And there are two descriptions he gives in particular about this change here. The first we could put this way. We could say, that he's telling them that their very relationship to God is impacted by what is about to happen. We see it in verses 23 and 24, and we see it again in 26 and 27. Look at verses 23 and 24 again. Jesus distinguishes between two ways that the disciples have received God's interaction and guidance. Do you see that? He says, In that day you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. For the last three years, give or take, it's been like this. God himself lived among them in the person of the Son. When they had needs, when they had questions, here he is right there for them to speak to and ask. In John 6, when their boat was about to sink, how were they rescued? Jesus walked up and saved them. They could make their requests to him. They could ask him their questions. They could give him their needs. All of this they can ask of Jesus. But he says, in that day that is coming, in the era that he, by his death, burial and resurrection, is bringing about, he says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. The contrasting reality is what he describes with the rest of verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. It's maybe an I'm sitting here thinking about this. This isn't on script. Is it appropriate? It's inappropriate of me to, to think that the inspired writers should have found a way to put italics or underlines in what they wrote. That's not right. But we need to be able to emphasize the right words and understand the point that he's making, right? He's, descri he's contrasting asking of him versus asking of the Father. In that day, he says, you won't need for me to be standing beside you bodily. In that day, you will bring your requests directly to the Father himself. And that's the very point he makes again in verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, and notice what he specifies. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. That's not what I'm talking about. Why not? Because the Father himself loves you 
because or since you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This is incredibly clarifying for us. And even on a topic that we maybe don't think about as often as we should, this helps us to get clarity about Jesus' role as our high priest that he is in now, in heaven. How is he exercising his role of high priest before the Father? Because it clearly continues in what he says here to show that we are dependent upon Jesus. Our dependency on Christ hasn't lessened or gone away. This asking of the Father is done and must be done in his name. But it's not giving us the picture that we may sometimes imagine, as if here's what's happening even now as I pray. I have needs and I lift them to God. The picture we might adopt sometimes is the notion that God doesn't even really hear us. He only hears his son. And so when we pray to God, what it does is it goes to Jesus, and then Jesus needs to go and actively intercede and present our requests to the Father. You notice that is exactly what Jesus is denying here, is the nature of our relationship to the Father. This has been thought about uh, for a long time. Calvin lays this out very helpfully. Can I read to you what, what he wrote about this? He said, when Christ is said to intercede with the Father for us, let us not imagine anything fleshly about him, as if he were on his knees before the Father, offering humble supplications. But the power of his sacrifice, by which he once pacified God towards us, is always powerful and efficacious. The blood by which he atoned for our sins, the obedience which he rendered, is a continual intercession for us. And he ends like this. He says, this is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that we have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his son. Let me read that again. This is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that we have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his son. Let me urge us to let that sink in a bit this morning. Because what it should be for us is it should be the great balm for our souls. The balm for the Christian whose heart, and we all know this, we experience this, when our heart is weighed down chronically even at times by guilt, by a sense of our shortcomings and weaknesses. This is the reality that Jesus himself says in verse 22 is rightly supposed to give us a joy that cannot be taken from us. This is the nature of our relationship to the Father. And it is this way because we come before God in Jesus' name. We talked about that phrase in Jesus' name a couple of weeks ago, especially as we were thinking of making requests. And we talked about how that really has a lot to do with asking in accord with the work and will of Christ. It's not so much about saying the words, the magic words, in Jesus' name, amen. It's about aligning our prayers with his will and according to, uh, to his work. We can say, though, in this context, even a little bit more about this notion of in Jesus' name. What this shows us here is that we are coming before God in Jesus' name. We're coming before him with, you could think of it in a trite way, I suppose, with Jesus' stamp of approval upon us. We sing, we sing in our songs, I love the song, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. You know that song? That's true. This is sort of the opposite. Of that. It's what Revelation 22.4 describes like this. His name will be written on our foreheads. This is the sort of relationship that the Bible is telling us that we have with God because of what Christ has done. 
As he poured out his life on the cross, he had my name written on his hands. And as we come before the throne of the Almighty, joined to his Son by faith, we have Jesus' name written on our foreheads. We have his righteousness draped over us like a garment, as will be spoken of in other places in Scripture, even as is prophesied and longed for in the Old Testament about what this Messiah will do. This is the relationship that comes about because of what Jesus is about to do in 24 hours. That's the relationship. How on earth did we come by that relationship with God? What have we seen in this gospel? What has Jesus made abundantly clear to us? We we have not come by that relationship because it's that way by nature. We are by nature what? According to the word-for-word account of Ephesians 2, 3, we are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, Paul writes. This is not the nature of our relationship with God because it was that way by nature. It's not this way because Christians have earned that status by being good. My goodness. My best works are filthy rags in the courtroom of God's justice. I have never committed in my life a single purely good righteous action. All of my thoughts and deeds have the taint of sin's imperfection on them. No, it's not like that. My place before a holy God is like this because of what Christ is just about to go and do a couple of chapters from now. He will accomplish this. By his blood, he will seal it. So that for all who are covered by his blood, all those who have been united to him by faith in him, the reality of this relationship is sealed forever. Paul writes in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have justified ourselves by... No. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the verdict, and it's the verdict forever. And so he comforts them with what this sorrow that's coming to them is going to produce. Joy, yes. You see me again? Yes. But my friends, this is a joy that you will never have taken away from you because what I'm about to accomplish changes your relationship and fixes it with your Father forever. This first change is a relational one. It's a change of posture. It's a change of access to the throne of God. The second change that he gives us here is he describes a change of clarity. And we see that one in the verse that we skipped over. Look again at verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. If you've been with us in the study, you've seen there is no gospel account that spells out the tremendous misunderstandings that happened in the course of Christ's ministry more than John's gospel does. Now, we've seen misunderstandings over and over again, tripping over his words, not drawing the right conclusions, not understanding what he's saying. Uh, Sometimes those misunderstandings have been due to rebellion of heart and unbelief. So in John 10, the Jews said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. What was his answer? I told you, and you do not believe. Sometimes it's unbelief. Sometimes there are weaknesses, even in the disciples, that are exposed by their misunderstandings. The things that they, that they should have seen more clearly than they did. So Jesus just said to Philip in John 14, Have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? But this thing that Jesus says in verse 25 is talking about something else. He's not describing communication barriers that have stemmed from sin or stubbornness. He's describing 
a present limitation with the present situation. As he describes his own words to them, and even those ones on this night. You see that? Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. He's including even this discourse. There are communication barriers that leads him to, to, to say, I have needed to speak to you in figures of speech. Now, that's a word, I don't know if I love that translation of the word. It has a range of meanings. Um, another way it's sometimes translated here is with the phrase veiled language. The point that he emphasizes with that word is to speak of the fact that there is something veiled to them now in what he is speaking to them. There's a veil. But he says the hour is coming. Once these things have come to pass, the hour is coming when that veil will be present no longer. And maybe the thought that we could have had here is, well, Jesus, why, why did you veil your speech like this? Why didn't you just come out and explain clearly? It's the very strong sense of the collective witness of all four Gospels that this lack of understanding that he's accommodating is inevitable for them until after Christ's work is finished and after he has sent the Holy Spirit to them to do what he's been promising, to bring them into all understanding. I mean, in one sense, the answer to the question, why didn't he just give them a literal play-by-play what was about to happen? In one sense, the answer is he did do that. It, it, It did not help. These things were beyond explanation. Listen to what we read in Mark 9, 31. This is even before Jesus comes into Jerusalem with his disciples. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. It doesn't matter what he tells them about the Father's plans for Christ. They can't take it in. I think it's identical to what he said back in verse 12 of our current chapter, that he has more to say to them, but they cannot bear it now. But they will be able to bear it once the spirit of truth comes to them. Now, next week we're going to hear the disciples totally demonstrate the truth of Jesus' assessment right there. That there is a veil that is between them and the full grasping of the truth. That's going to be put right on display And the next thing that they say. And that's what we'll do next week is we'll finish this text out. And then we'll come and look at all of it and see how the New Testament applies it in other areas for us. But this morning, I would have us notice here that Jesus is promising us here that his finished work results in God's people being given clarity. And clarity about what? According to verse 25. Clarity about the Father. That is to say, clarity about the work and the plan that the Father has brought about in Christ for salvation. The removal of this veil means that we can look even at the horrifying evil of the cross and can actually praise God for it in exactly the way that that woman in labor can look back on her pain and say, I'm glad that that happened. We can look at the cross through our tears and, in fact, rejoice. We're glad that Christ endured it. And we're glad because of the clarity that God has given us. We're glad because now we can see, as we look back, what God is doing. We can see what it was for. How could the disciples possibly see this Now, Peter rebuked Jesus in Matthew 16 when he spoke there in small terms of being killed. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of man. How could they possibly rejoice at the cross? They can't fathom what God is about to do. But when all is finished and the Spirit grants them understanding of what God has in fact accomplished by pouring out his wrath on his son in their place, they will spend the rest of their lives glorying in the cross. 
Paul himself, who was late to the party, who was not here on that night, Paul will say in Galatians 6 that all he will ever boast about is the cross. It is the singular source of his boasting in life. This thing that now they can only see in horror and can't even imagine. You see, we can say things like this because God has given us clarity about his plans for salvation in his son. And we draw near to God with boldness because he has given his people just such a relationship by the work of the cross. As we close this morning, I would suggest to you there's two changes. Both of those that Jesus has described, we could turn into exhortations for ourselves this morning. Think about the change he gave us concerning the change of relationship. The exhortation we could take from that could be, brothers and sisters, be renewed in the boldness of your relationship to your heavenly father. If this was the cost for such a relationship of directness, of access, of nearness, and have we not heard Jesus say, this is what I'm accomplishing for you, nearness with the Father. You don't need to ask to go through me here standing beside you. Let me reread verse 26 and 27. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This is what he has accomplished for us. And if that's the case, my friends, why would we choose to stay distant from him? This is the very exhortation of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He says, we do not have a high priest. Interesting how he appeals to the high priestly work here. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The conclusion we're supposed to draw is one that leads us boldly to draw near to our Heavenly Father. And so may this describe our relationship to Him in light of what Christ has accomplished for us at the cross. That's the relationship change. What about the clarity? How can we apply to our lives what he has told us he has given us of this increased clarity? There's maybe a a weird way that the adage, uh, the grass is always greener on the other side. There's a strange way that that can come to inflict us where we can take what we know and come to be dissatisfied with it. There must be something more. Let us hear this morning as verse 25 declared to us that Christ has accomplished for us and has brought to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit what he calls here plain speech about the Father. He has now spoken to us plainly about the Father. It's popular in our time, in some realms that that consider themselves churches even, to speak as if it's humility, to say, how could we really know and be confident that we know what God is like or how he works? It's such a humble question, isn't it? In many forms, postmodernism has infected the church by leading people to say, Ignorant and worldly things. Like came out in a popular Christian book uh, a number of years ago now. Uh, Pretending we know and understand God is like an ant crawling on an elephant's foot and thinking it understands what an elephant is. That's an analogy that Brian McLaren used in his book a number of years ago. And he called us in light of that to what he called humility. Hold our convictions about what God's word has revealed to us of God. Hold them lightly because we want to remember to be humble. My friends, such a definition of humility utterly denies what Jesus is declaring to us here. What he died to bring to us was clarity about who God is through the full revelation of God in his word. Someone much smarter than I'll ever be responded well to that misleading analogy about ants and elephants. 
And I'll close this morning by sharing it to you. And here's my prayer for us, my friends. May we live out our convictions and our thought lives with this truth clearly perceived. I'm quoting. Although the comparison of elephants and ants is helpful at one level, it overlooks the fact that in this case, it overlooks the fact that in this case, the ants have been made in the image of the elephant. And this elephant has not only communicated with the ants in ant language, but has also in the person, but has also in the person of his son become an ant while remaining an elephant. If the ants were left on their own to figure out what the elephant knows and thinks and feels, then mystery would be too weak a word. Yet in the case of the revealing elephant with whom we have to do, he has told us ants what he is like, what he thinks, what he feels, what he has done, and what he is going to do. Not exhaustively, of course, but truly. End quote. And what we could add to that in light of our study this morning is that it is precisely this clarity that Jesus Christ on his cross has brought to us. And the picture of God that he has put on display there, is it not beautiful? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we are grateful for how you have loved us today and fed us today, brought us fellowship, brought us out of ourselves to look out to others, to be of service to them, to, use, to be used by you, to be an instrument of your love to our brothers and sisters. This is a wonderful thing you are doing for us today. And we pray, Father, be at work in us, your people today, so that we leave here with a greater awareness than we came with, of the nearness that we have with you through your son's perfect work. And also, Lord, grant us a greater awareness of the true revelation you have given to us concerning yourself, true and trustworthy, as you have explained your purposes and the work of your son in our Bibles. We are here together in awe, Father, as we consider the heights that you've brought us too, by the gracious work of Christ Jesus. And this morning we thank you. We pray this now in his name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand with me once more. Let's